from the book of 2 Samuel. Your glory, O Israel, is slain in your high places. How the mighty have fallen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, Today we are continuing our summer series on the life of David. And what makes today's text so interesting is that it's a lament. It's a song of sorrow to commemorate the lives of Saul and Jonathan who died in battle. And in this culture, you know, songs and stories were how great men were remembered, how they were preserved in that society. You know, today we might have uh, biographies or documentaries or statues, uh, but then it was, it was songs. And so it's no surprise that David would write one for Israel's first king, Saul. Unless, of course, that king wanted you dead, right? Unless, of course, that king was your absolute enemy, unless that king wanted to bury you in the dirt. You see, last week, uh, Father Rodriguez preached on the battle between David and Goliath. And, and a lot has happened in our text from that time. A lot of time has passed. Uh, see, a few things that have happened were that immediately after David slew Goliath, the Israelites started to cheer on David. And they celebrated him. They said, you know, David has killed his thousands. I mean, Saul has killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. And right after the celebration of victory, Saul felt threatened, and he became resentful and vengeful and murderous. You see, Saul tried to pin David to a wall with his spear twice. He tried to then kill David, because that didn't work. David dodged him. So he said, okay, well, how do I get rid of David? I know, I'll send him on a suicide mission against the Philistines. That'll do it. Didn't work. David was successful. So then he said, okay, well, I'll, I guess I'll send men to David's house, and they'll lie and wait for him, and then we'll kill him that way. Well, David's wife warned him and let him out down by a window, and he was able to escape. And at this point, David kind of realizes, wait a minute, maybe something's up. Maybe Saul's not a big fan of me. And so he goes to Jonathan and he says, hey, Jonathan, is your dad trying to kill me? Well, it turned out, yeah, David, he is. So David split, right? He left. He fled to preserve his life. He went into exile. But even even after David left, Saul continually tried to pursue him. Saul would do this thing where the Philistines would attack, and Saul would fight them off. And then whenever there was a break in that, he'd go after David. Philistines would attack, Saul would fight him off, go after David again. In fact, Scripture is very clear on the um, enmity that Saul felt towards David. It says, uh, the Bible says, Saul was David's enemy continually. Which then goes back and begs the question, right? Why write the lament? Why sing the praises of Saul? Why lift him up as a hero? Why mourn your political adversary, the man who wanted you out of the picture? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, because what really comes together in our text, in the stories of Saul and David, are the stark differences of the politics, and I know we say we don't preach politics. I'm not going, I'm not going left or right in this, all right? Hear, hear me say that 
are the, but it is a political sermon because it talks about the manner of politicking. And what we see is the difference between the realpolitik of Saul as king and the principles of David as king. And we're going to juxtapose the lives of those two men. One was the wielder of power politics, and one was a man of principle. So let's talk about Saul. Who was Saul? What was was this about? Well, Saul practiced, again, I mentioned it, realpolitik. And this idea has come to mean, didn't mean this originally, but it's come to mean that your politics are governed by two principles, right? Power and pragmatism. Power and pragmatism. You know, Saul didn't start off as profoundly immoral, like, hey, let's, you know, let's just enslave and torture everybody around us. He was just amoral. He didn't submit to God's law. He just lived life in whatever way seemed practical or pragmatic to him. And I'll give you some examples of this. The first time he gathered together Israel's army, he used coercion to get everybody together. Instead of, instead of being a good politician and saying, hey guys, let's be diplomatic, let's, let's talk, let's come together, let's unify, he cut up his oxen, he sent the pieces of them to everybody in Israel, and he said, hey guys, if you don't come behind me in this battle, I'm going to do the same thing to your oxen. Not great. Second thing, early in his reign, he was trying to keep the morale of the troops up. And you know, before you went into battle, you'd have a sacrifice to God, and then you would go out into battle. Well, the priest wasn't there on time. And so Saul says, well, let me just, you know, everybody started to get kind of anxious and worried and scatter. So Saul said, forget principle. I'm just going to sacrifice this thing by myself, and we're just going to get this thing done. And again, uh, pragmatism ruled the day, right? He did that, and he was sharply rebuked. He disobeyed God. He disobeyed God. Then his third mistake is God told him when he went into this battle, take no loot. Like, don't take, don't take the animals, don't take any of the finery or any of the, the gold, silver, anything that you see. Just wipe it out. Be done with it. Well, Saul went into battle. They were victorious, and he looks around, and he says, seems kind of nice. Kind of wish I had these. So he disobeys God again, right? Again, he's, he's an eminently practical thinker, right? So he brings the loot back. And Samuel, the prophet, approaches him, and he says, Saul, what have you done? And Saul says, well, I was, I was obedient. Everything went well. Everything's fine. And Samuel's like, I hear the bleeding of sheep. That's, that's actually in Scripture. I hear the bleeding of sheep. And Saul says, oh, well, the people, right? They, they wanted the stuff, and we were going to sacrifice it to God anyway, so I guess that's fine. Again, Saul governed by power and pragmatism. He, you know, I keep stepping on Austin. Sorry, Austin. He governed by power and pragmatism, right? Political expediency. And I think that every single one of us in this room can understand that impulse, can't we? Shortcuts, pragmatism. Force somebody to do something instead of trying to work with them and instead of trying to create something together. After all, why follow the rules when you can just change them arbitrarily to suit your benefit? Why follow the rules at all? Why own your faults? Why admit mistakes when you can just lie and shift the blame elsewhere? That's easier. Why be diplomatic 
when you can just force people to do what you want them to do, when you can just coerce them, when you can use the tools of coercion like fear, when you can manipulate them through obligation, when you can try to force their hand through guilt. Why, why engage in this diplomatic process when you can just make people do what you want? And if you look around, Paul's polit- Saul's politics haven't gone away, have they? His governing principles haven't gone away. Our culture has, by and large, embraced his way of operating. Just look at how people treat each other on social media. Is anybody on anything like that? Anybody on? Fa- you don't have to raise your hands. I forgot. We're Episcopalians. We don't do that. But anybody on Facebook or uh, what are they, Instagram or I've, I've heard, and I'm, I'm not on this, and I'm not going to, but the worst, Twitter? Dark place, Twitter. Right? Well, Look at how people look, look at look at the look at the politics of Saul as they play themselves out. You know, for example, today, the rules of what is or isn't culturally acceptable to say on social media change so fast and arbitrarily that even the most progressive people keep getting tripped up. You know, just this past week, you can no longer warn somebody that you might offend them by saying trigger warning. That's now not allowed. Do you know why? Because triggers associated with guns. Can't say that. You know, honestly, you need, you need a running list of things that are no longer okay to say that you, that you consult week by week. This week also, killing it, you know, like you're killing it. Don't do that. Uh, take a shot at it. Don't do that for the same reasons. But, but the rules change so quickly and arbitrarily. And, and you might wonder, who would do that? Why would people do that? and then be punitive and come after people? Who changes the rules so often that everyone is bound to be offensive and step on a tripwire at some point? What kind of person does that? Well, those with the most to gain. What are they gaining? Power. By keeping everyone else unbalanced and setting themselves up as the judge and jury. It's wicked. Let's look at the second, the second way that we see Saul's political philosophy operating. As for lying, how many people do you think are honest on social media? I mean, first, let's just look at your representation, right? Like, we're all happy, everything's great, nobody fights, or it's wonderful. Look at my kitchen, it's beautiful, right? Uh, you know, that, I mean, that's the way that we approach it. And, you know, that can be innocent enough, right? Misrepresentation. But what's, what's happened now on social media is that people misrepresent the claims of others so that they can attack them. This just happened to Richard Dawkins. He posed a question. And, and Richard, R- Richard Dawkins, by the way, has said that he is, he is pro-trans. Now everybody, again, he talk politics like, oh, what's he going to say? Don't worry. Um, Richard Dawkins has said that he's pro-trans, but then he posed a question about it, an honest question saying, well, wait a minute, how do these rules work? And then everybody jumped on him, mischaracterized his question, and he lost his Humanist of the Year award, you know, his atheistic society that he was a part of. He was scapegoated and kicked out. He's done. You know, and then as for co- so again, that's, that's lying by misrepresenting somebody else. That's um, changing the rules on them to trip them up. And then as for coercion, well, you go on social media and you try to express not, a, not even a, a conservative political opinion, but just a center one. And you find out how quickly complete strangers are interested in depriving you of your livelihood. 
fire this person. Don't let them be hired again. I don't care what happens to his kids. You're done. This is a big problem. You know, power and pragmatism without principle, it might be politically expedient, but what it ends up doing is creating hell on earth. And it doesn't matter if you believe that your cause is just. You know, after all, Saul had one of the most just causes that you can think about. He was the king of Israel. His job was to ensure the survival and prosperity of God's chosen people. His job was to preserve the lineage that would give birth to Jesus Christ, who would save the world. That's a big deal. That's a just cause. It doesn't get much more just than that. But, you know, just causes can be especially dangerous because then you situate yourself in the role of the hero working for the greater good. And the means that you use to bring about that greater good, everything's on the table. Without, but, and, you know, without moral constraints, without principles, you end up creating a hell on earth. You know, tell me again, what's the road to hell paved with? Yeah, good intentions. So, C.S. Lewis, um, he, I, think he, I think he described this creation of hell on earth perfectly. This is what he said. He said, if you, know, if you walked down this road long enough, if, you're, if, you're, if this is the world that you're building, this is what he says. He said, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives with the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. You know, he may have well been describing Saul. Saul was resentful, he was envious, he was nurturing a grievance against David, and he was consumed with concern about maintaining his power, his throne. So what's the alternative? What's the alternative to this? Well, let's shift and look at David. You know, it's really astounding that David, David was able to write a lament about this enemy. To put it simply, the difference between Saul and David is that David chose principle over pragmatism. David lived by God's law, even when it wasn't politically expedient. And I'm going to run through a list. By the way, I had a list of like 100 principles. I'm down to three. So we're going to do three principles um, of, of what David's principles were that he lived by. But I think, you know, Christians, as we live by these three principles, we can do a lot to shape the culture around us and to change it. And that's what we're supposed to be doing anyway. So, three principles. The first one that David lived by is David chose mercy over vengeance. You know, there was one time when Saul was hunting David, and David and his men were hiding in caves. There was, you know, hundreds of caves. And Saul, you know, he's hunting David. He's in the desert. He had to go relieve himself. So he went up into just a random cave, any one of these many caves. And he went to go relieve himself. And of course, it just so happened to be the cave that David and his men are in. That's an insane coincidence, right? And David's men point this out, and they're like, hey, look, just end it now. Take him out. We'll support you. Be the king. We're done. Let's pack it up and move along. David's not sure, so they say, well, David, what are the odds? 
Clearly God has ordained this to happen. Clearly he's made this happen for you. I mean, there's thousands of caves. Just go do it. So David sneaks up, cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, and he immediately regrets it. He repents. He doesn't take him out there. He, he repents and he says, he even says, Saul, you know, like, like, look what I've done. And he lets Saul go free. Well, a second time, Saul is pursuing David, right? He's coming after him again in the desert. And they go to take, you know, they go to sleep. And when, a, when an army sleeps, you know, especially in, in those days, you put the king at the center of the army, right? So that, you know, you'd have all these things to protect the king. Well, David and his men are able to sneak all the way through the camp right to where, right to where Saul is. And they take a spear and a water jug that are right next to his sleeping head. And he stabs, no, he doesn't do that. Just kidding. Now, what does he do? He takes them and he pulls them out. And he shows them, Saul, I could have killed you didn't do it. David stays his hand. You know, twice he could have prayed on his vulnerability. And you know what? His cause was just because he was the rightful king. And by all appearances, God had delivered his enemy to his hands, but he didn't strike. Instead, he trusted that God would bring about his will and his timing in his way. You know, as Christians, we don't use the weapons and tactics of this world because we know that God is in control. We know that He's directing the course of history to the end that He has chosen. And because we know that end, we're free to be a lot more focused on living by our principles, by living on the way that we ought to. We're not panicked about trying to create the perfect world as fast as we can, in any manner that we can. Of all people, we're the most free to show mercy. You know, so, so if you do, if you, and by the way, anybody who debates on social media, I don't get it. Uh, don't do that. But if you do, right, like say, say it's just fun for you, and your opponent misspeaks or commits a faux pas or has difficulty communicating his point, do you jump on that and attack them for it? Or are you gracious, assuming the best and even, even if they're having trouble articulating their point against you? Check this out. You could ask charitable questions to help them communicate their point and engage with that point. You know, it's, it's a really good practice to assume that everybody knows something that you don't and that you could learn from them. Which brings us to our second principle. David chose humility over hubris. David chose humility over hubris. You know, those two times that Saul caught up to, to David... This is what David said. David said, the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea. And even after the cave incident, David asked him, whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A single flea? You know, David was the next anointed king of Israel. He was the one at whose hand Goliath was, was, you know, died at. He killed Goliath, but he still wasn't boasting or holding himself in high regard. Even when, even when he defeated Goliath, guess who he gave credit, credit for, you know, to that for? He gave it to God. David was an exemplar of humility. You know, and as a result, as a result of his humility, catch this, he was able to not take Saul's attacks on him so personally. I read an article this week that over 40% of people my age believe that if you disagree, that if someone disagrees with them, it is a personal attack and an offense. If somebody disagrees with your idea, it's personal attack and offense. 
And guess what that justifies in return? Personal attack, doesn't it? You know, I don't know how to describe that except supremely narcissistic. Christians, we should know better than to operate that way. What does Paul write in Ephesians about our opponents? Our war is not against flesh and blood, right? But against powers, principalities, right? And then think about, think about um, what he writes in 2 Corinthians. He says that our weapons of warfare, again, aren't flesh and blood, but, argument, but, but we wage war against arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. It's not personal. It's ideological. That's, that's where we're at. That's where our conversations happen. And the only way that we can do that is if we don't take things so personal. We can remove ourselves from the picture. You see, our goal, and our goal isn't even to destroy our opponent, but to win them over to Christ. That's a different aim. I can correct you where I believe that you're wrong, or I can engage with you in discussion about that, but I want you to be a follower of Christ right next to me. But we only have the strength of presence to do that if we can depersonalize the political. You know, I asked earlier, how was David able to write this lament for Saul? It's because he took himself out of it. He took himself out of it. And he was even able to celebrate the good that Saul had accomplished on behalf of Israel. Which brings us to our final point, our final principle. David chose gratitude over resentment. That's a tough choice. I mean, by all accounts, David had a right to be bitter, right? He was denied his, his due as a warrior for Israel. His throne was delayed. He was driven from his homeland, and he was forced to live as a mercenary in the desert. You would expect him to be bitter and vengeful at the injustice of it all. I mean, wouldn't you be? I would be. How much resentment have you held on to for insults that were far less than that? How much have you locked in on somebody as a personal enemy of yours for things that were far, far less than that? And that's what makes David all the more surprising because he praises Saul for protecting and providing for the nation of Israel. Look back at the lament. Look at what he says about Saul. He says that Saul was a mighty shield for Israel. He served as Israel's protector. And then look at what else it says. It says that Saul was Saul celebrated his provision. It says that he clothed the daughters of Israel, right, with garments of finery. What that meant was he created a country that allowed them to grow, that allowed them to prosper. You know, so how did he do that? How, how did he remain grateful in the face of Saul's vengeance and the injustice that he received? and the active oppression that he was under. That's a tall order for anyone. Well, David had God. Period. David had God. You know, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis again just because I, I love the man. You know, he said, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Think about that. He who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. See, David had God. Does this mean that David was grateful for his persecution? Of 
course not. Does this mean that he had to just accept his lot? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. He knew it wasn't just, but he didn't let his heart get embittered and filled with resentment. He didn't allow Saul's hatred of him to become his hatred of Saul. Because if he had, he would have become Saul. You would have had Saul part one and Saul part two. No difference. Instead, he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. And in Christians, we're called to do the same. You know, recognize that we have a supreme gift in Jesus Christ. And even if we were to lose everything else, we would still have him. And let that be enough for us. You know, even when we're facing down those who would choose to be our enemy continually, I would encourage you, resting on the, on the foundation of Christ, choose gratitude. Walk humbly. Show mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us into a life with you and in you, in the fullness of the relationship that you have, the love that you have for us. God, I pray that as we go out into the world and as we face difficulties, as we face setbacks, as we even face those who would set themselves against us, who would attempt to use power and pragmatism to rule over us, I pray that you would give the strength of character and the fortitude that David had. And that in all of our things, we would know that we can rest on you and that you are enough. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.